Hasn't it been great to worship the Lord today? I just appreciate so much our worship team and ministry. Today we come to the last service in our Extreme Makeover Home Edition series. And I tried to find some way to explain to you why this series was so important to me that we would give it the first space at the beginning of 2006. And it's been a joy to be in these these services because, you know, I keep hearing about life-changing things that are happening, and it really excites me to hear that. But when it's all said and done, I I just feel like we've done a really good thing to focus on our families at the beginning of this year because, after all, what's more important to us in this world than our families? You know, we go after money, we go after education, we go after status, but when it's all said and done, the most important thing to us in this world is our family. And I was trying to find some way to say that to you, some words that I could communicate, but I came across something that said it better than I ever could. I don't know if the name David Bloom is familiar to you or not, but some of you will remember that David Bloom was the White House correspondent for NBC. And of more recent note, you might recall that David Bloom died in Iraq, young reporter uh, at the top of his game, perhaps the finest reporter in the country. He had some sort of blood clot, I think, in his lung, a freak thing, and died as a very young man in, in Iraq just some time ago. I didn't know this. I was having lunch with Roger Cornish the other day, and Roger was telling me that David Bloom was actually at RKWCH in the late 80s. I'd forgotten that or didn't know it, but uh, David went on, of course, to stardom with NBC. And he, he, he filed one last report before he died, in fact, his last words. But these were not words for a news report for NBC. It was an email to his wife. And at David's memorial service, these words were read. And for me, I just couldn't think of any better words to begin this last message to explain why we focused on the family as we have in this series. I couldn't find a better way than David's words. He writes, I hope and pray that all my guys, the troops, get out of this in one piece. But I am at peace. Here I am, supposedly at the peak of professional success, but I could, frankly, care less. It's nothing compared to my relationship with you and the girls and Jesus. How could you say it better than that? Trust a reporter to put it in those terms. It's nothing compared to my relationship with you and the girls and Jesus. My goal in this series is to help you have a new home, a new marriage, a new relationship with your kids. We've we've borrowed the the series, the name of the series, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. You know the show, many of you. It's a show where the team gets together and they create a whole new environment, a a new house, uh, perhaps a new landscaping, new outside buildings. With everything, all attention given to the needs and the wants of this particular family, they're given their dream home, a show place. It's awesome. They get to live in a new house. 
But most of us don't need that as much as we need something new in our relationship with our husbands, our wives, our, our kids, and our parents. And that's what this series has been about today. And this morning, the title of the message is Move That Bus. How many of you have watched this? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have watched the show? You know what it's like. I mean, the, the team of workers has been working to build this majestic show place. But the family's been kept in the dark. They're secluded someplace. They don't know what's going on. All they know is that the team is working on their new house. And finally, when everything is completed, they're led out to the site. But they're not allowed to see the house yet because in between them and the house they're going to live in is a big bus. And that bus, of course, blocks the view. And the shout crescendos up from everybody who is gathered there, move that bus, and the bus goes out of the way and the family is allowed to see their new digs. I want you to think about the fact today that there are some, some buses in our world, in our lives, in our family relationships that hinder us from seeing the potential that God has for our marriages and our families and in this last message today, I want to challenge you to, to identify those buses so that we can get them out of the way and see the place, the home, not the house, but the home, the marriage, the relationships that God wants to give you and wants you to have. Now, I always get agitated when a preacher does this, so I'm telling you this up front. Uh, this is, homiletically, this is kind of cheesy, but I couldn't think of any other way to get these points across than to name the buses. So if you're taking notes this morning, you might want to just go along with me for the ride, no pun intended, and name some of the buses that can be in between you and the marriage and the family relationship that God wants you to have. Let's start with the first bus today. It's the bus that we're going to call hopeless. It's the hopeless bus. You know, you remember the old movie Streetcar Named Desire? This is the bus called Hopeless. I've talked with many people through the years that get to some place in their marriage or their relationship with their parents or kids where they just say to me, Mark, there's just no hope. It's not going to happen. I got married with the greatest of hopes and the great dreams, but my marriage just going down the tubes. There's nothing that can be done about it. It's too late. How many times have I sat and talked to somebody about what's going on in their lives with their marriage or with their relationships, and they say, Mark, it's too late. It's hopeless. Could I tell you this morning that that's one of the enemy's greatest tools to get you to believe that what God wants you to have is impossible? That's a fact. The enemy wants you to believe that what God wants you to have is not possible. For instance, the idea of going to heaven. The Bible tells us that's the free gift of God. That is what God does for us based on what Jesus did on the cross. And Scripture says all you have to do is to pray to receive Christ, to accept Him as your Lord and Savior, and all your sins are washed away and God writes your name on the census book of heaven. You become God's child. You're going to heaven when you die. The enemy wants you to say, that's impossible. But those things which are impossible with man are possible with God. So many times when we look at our family relationships and situations and we say it's impossible, what we're saying is, as far as we can see, it's impossible. But I want to challenge you right out of the box this morning to believe in a God who does miracles. The Bible tells us that the God of the Bible is the same God today. Later this spring, we're going to be in a series called Coffee with a Perfect Stranger, and we're going to see what it would be like if Jesus met people today, just like he met people back in Bible days. And the fact is, Jesus is still meeting people today. Our God today is the same God of the Bible. That means that when you pray and ask God to help you in your marriage, you have the same God who opened the Red Sea for Moses, the same God who closed the lion's mouths for Daniel, the same God who changed the king's heart for Esther is your God. 
He's the God you can talk to about your impossible, hopeless marriage. Let me read to you what the Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. And this is the New Testament. This is uh, long after the life of Abraham, but it's about Abraham. And you remember the story how that God promised Abraham he was going to be the father of many nations. It's kind of tough to be the father of many nations when you're not the father of one child. And he lived to be 70 and no kids, 80 and no kids, 90 and no kids. God had promised him he was going to have a child. And by the time he finally had the child, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Now, there aren't too many people at all, 190. There aren't that many couples aged that. Certainly, they're not down in the maternity ward. But that's how the Bible tells us about it. And this is what Scripture says in Romans chapter 4. As it is written, I made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead. And look at this. And calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And later in that same chapter, the Bible will tell us Abraham was completely confident that whatever God promised, God could pull off. Now that's a fact. It's the same thing with your marriage today. Listen, you are dealing with a God who calls things that are not, that, that don't exist, as though they did exist. For instance, an example of that would be when in the New Testament, Lazarus died and Jesus came to Mary and Martha's house. And before he got there, he said to the disciples, Lazarus isn't dead, he's just asleep. Nobody but Jesus could say that. But God has a way of calling those things that are not as though they are. You may be saying today, Mark, my situation with my family is impossible. I don't know why I got married. I don't know why I had kids. I don't know why I had parents. It's just a terrible mistake, and it's just not going to work out. Don't forget that you have God to turn to. You say, Mark, I can't see him, but he's there. You say, Mark, I can't hear him, but he still speaks. You can always talk to God. So you have to get that bus called hopeless out of the way. Let's speed through this. Here's the next bus. It's the bus called yesterday. The bus called yesterday. You know, one of the great problems that we have with our families, one of the things that keeps us from having the relationships that we need to have in our marriage and with our children is the past drags us down. Every person here, if you've been married for any length of time, you got a history. You got stuff to talk about, right? And maybe you get over something, but after a while you get into an argument and out it comes. You drag out the past. A couple of guys were talking over here at Boeing I heard about. One guy said to the other, every time my wife and I get into an argument, she just gets historical. <laughs> and his friend said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She reminds me of every stupid thing I've ever done. And I've heard that, you know, couples, that they, they should enjoy the day. They should be having a great day. You know, it's great weather like we're having here in January. And God is good. And we've got plenty to eat. We've got nice houses to live in and good cars to drive. But there are couples that are just at each other's throat over some dumb thing that somebody did years ago. We're spoiling our todays because of our yesterdays. Every time I think about that, I have this crazy story from my childhood that comes back to mind. When I was a kid growing up, <laughs> I had this dog. He was a mongrel dog. You know, he was about that big around. He had feet about that long. His name was Scotty, and he was legend in our community. You ever have a dog that just, there's all these stories that people still tell about this dog years later? That was Scotty. He was sweet with kids, but he never saw a dog he couldn't whip. And he was, like I say, he was legend in our neighborhood for some of the biggest dogs in the neighborhood that he had beaten. They just left Scotty alone. 
But you have to understand, I grew up in a little area uh, east, southeast of Fort Worth that was something in between a suburb and a little country town. And people had big lots, and, and, and I had neighbors who had horses and farm animals. And here I am growing up in the city, and my parents both came from the country, and they wanted me to have a little exposure to what life was all about. So sometime along the way, when I was about eight or nine years old, my dad decided that we needed some chickens. And we got them. And they were out there, and it's my job to feed them, take care of them. But we, we, we noticed every once in a while we'd go out and one of the chickens would be dead. And my dad, growing up in the country, and saw the markings on the chicken and said, Son, we got a possum. Now, for those of you who are city and refined, that is opossum. But for those of us in the country in Texas, it's just possum. He said, Son, we have a possum. You're getting in killing chickens. So he said, We're going to have to watch for this. Well, I didn't know what he had in mind, but a couple nights later, but Dad woke me up about 2 o'clock in the morning, and chickens were making all kinds of racket. And Dad said, Mark, let's go out there. That possum's out there right now, even as we speak. And so we went out there, and Dad got Scotty, and Scotty came along with us. And, and when we got there, Dad said, Sick him, Scotty. Now, that was ordinarily enough to launch Scotty. I mean, all you had to say was sick him, and he'd go after the baddest junkyard dog in town. But it was dark. Scotty didn't know what was in there. Dad reached down, grabbed him up by the fur on his back, and threw him in there. <laughs> there were people as far, as far away as mineral wells who could hear bones cracking as Scotty got a hold of that opossum. And he tore him up. And when he saw that he was dead, and I mean he was dead, there was no way of reviving him. It was finished for this opossum. Scotty saw that he had an audience, and he proceeded to kill him all over for Dad and me again to watch. And to this day, I don't know how we got that possum away from Scotty. I think I had to go into the house and get some meat and lure him away so that we could bury that possum, give him a Christian burial. <laughs> Finally, we got that opossum buried, and Dad and I exhausted. We went back to bed. Next morning, 6 o'clock, we got up to eat breakfast. We opened the back door. Still a little while before lunch, so I can tell this story. It's kind of grisly. When we opened the back door, there was Scotty sitting there with his trophy at his feet. He had dug him up. And when he was aware that he had an audience, he proceeded to put on the show and show us again how he killed him. Parts flying everywhere. And this went on morning after morning. We'd have to get him, the, the opossum away and bury it again and do it until finally there was just nothing left to dig up. Sometimes when I listen to people talk, that's what I think about. <laughs> They got stuff that died a long time ago. Bury it, leave it, but no, they've got to go pick it up, dig it up time and time again and drag it out for each other to smell and look at and go over all the pain of the past. You know, friends, we could take a lesson from God here. God wants to teach us more than anything else that if you, if you and I are going to have a relationship with him, the first thing God has to do is to get rid of our past. That's why some of you in religion can never have a relationship with God. You're trying to hold on to your past and have God to. God says, no, 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 no. You've got to get rid of the past before you can have a relationship with me. And thankfully, he does it for us. You know, so many of us, we think, how can God accept me with all the things that I've done? Friend, the fact is, God gets rid of all the things you've done. He accepts you at the very beginning and then says, now have a relationship with me. He doesn't say perform and do better and then I'll accept you. He says, I'll accept you. I'll forget the past. Now you come and enjoy a relationship with me. That was so important to him. He put his son on a cross to take care of your past. 
God not only forgives you of what you have done, he forgets the past. God not only gives you forgiveness, he gives you amnesty. Amnesty and amnesia come from the same word. The Bible tells us God forgives us and he forgets everything we've done wrong and puts it as far away from him as the east is from the west. And now here's what God says to you and me. This is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. The Bible says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Listen to this. Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You know what that means? That means that I forgive Mary Alice just like God has forgiven me. I don't say to her, you know what, if you can find some way to right every wrong and everything you've ever said to me that I didn't like, if you can find some way to right that, then I'll have a relationship with you. No, 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 no. That means I say to Mary Alice, it's all forgotten. If you've ever said a crossword to me, I don't remember it. If anything you've ever done has let me down, I don't remember it anymore. Our relationship is based on forgiveness, constant forgiveness every day. And the Lord knows she's had to forgive me of hundreds of thousands of foolish things. When you imagine this bus called yesterday, I want to give you a mental image of this. How many of you have been traveling somewhere out in the country and you look and you come across this, you know, this farm or some outlying place and somebody has bought an old school bus? I mean, it's driven to death. There's no motor in it. The windows have been all knocked out, shattered by a hundred rock fights. There are no wheels on it. It's up on concrete blocks. And you wonder, why did anybody keep that? Whenever you think about the bus called yesterday, let it be that. That's what all your past is like. It's like that old bus, the motor is gone, the windows are all shattered out. You've thrown so many rocks, all the windows are gone. It's out there, it's on concrete blocks. But human nature is a weird thing. For some reason, we, we're so good at letting the past keep us from enjoying today. There are some, perhaps here today, or watching me on television, you like to drive the bus called yesterday. You use the past to get leverage on the people in your family. You want to say to your husband, you know what, all the stuff you've done, I remember, I've got chapter and verse, I've got it all written down, all the things that you've said to me, all the things that, that you've done that I didn't like. Or there's a husband who says, hey, listen, I can remember chapter and verse, all the different ways you've let me down and why you're not as nice as the woman across the street or whatever. There are some of you that like to drive that bus called yesterday. You want to remind your kids of all the ways that they've disappointed you and why they're never going to be winners in life and all the dumb things that they do. You want to drive the bus. And there's some of you, you don't want to drive the bus called yesterday. You just want to ride it. There's something about climbing onto that old vinyl seat that, re, that says, you know what, I have an excuse for every, every reason why I'm failing in life. It's my past, all the things that people have done to me. And yes, I know there's some benefit in going back and understanding your past and knowing how that stuff has an effect on you, but there's a point at which you've got to put it under the ground and leave it buried and don't dig it up anymore. So many, you just want, you want to ride. You get in, get in there, and for some reason, even though it's a cruddy old bus, it's just if I can get on this vinyl seat, I can feel good about myself because I can wallow in self-pity and say, all, see all the stuff that happened in my past. But friends, could I just tell you one thing? With all the love of my soul, I mean, if you can imagine that old bus that I talked about that's out there up on concrete blocks with no motor and all the windows shattered out, whether you want to drive it or ride on it, there's one fact that's inescapable, and that's the fact that old bus ain't going anyplace. And that's the way it is with your past. 
You can try to drive it. You can try to ride it. But at the end of the day, it's not going anyplace. You can change your present. You can change your future. But there's not a thing in the world you can do about yesterday. And could I just guarantee, could I just ask you, take that old junker, that bus called yesterday, and take it to the junkyard where it belongs and get focused on today and tomorrow. Okay? Oh, I've got so much to cover. Okay, let's go back. Let's go to the next bus. This is the bus called Irresponsible. Now, some of you are going to think that maybe it's a little contradictory to what I just said because it's, it's perhaps the different side of the same sphere. You know, there are people that have the idea today that says, it says something like this. Well, God will forgive me for any wrong thing I do, so therefore I can do anything I want to. It's true God will forgive you of any sin you commit. And if you accept him as Savior and Lord, he'll always be there for you. But actions have consequences, and decisions have ramifications. I'll give you a, a bizarre, extreme example of that. I mean, thankfully, because of great parents who taught me, I've never been drunk in my life. I give all glory to God and great parents, none to myself. But let's suppose, hypothetically speaking, that I did. I went out and got drunk, got in my little Toyota, and I, I, I started driving and lost control of my car and ran into a telephone pole. And in that accident, broke my back, and I'm paralyzed. Will God forgive me? Yes. Will I walk again? No. See, that's what I'm trying to tell you. God will forgive us for the things that we do wrong, but that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences and ramifications. And, and I just run into Christians all the time, it seems like, these days who want to say, you know what, I know I'm not supposed to leave my husband, but you know what, it, I'm just, it's not working for me, so I'm just going to do it, and I'm just going to figure out that it's going to work out. Or I know it's not right for me. I found some woman that I like better, that I'm going to leave my wife, and everything's going to work out for me. Friends, I want you to remember something. In every situation, there's difficulty. In every marriage, there are tough days. In every parent-child relationship, boy, are there tough days. But you remember this. Family life begins with commitment. In fact, let me say this. Family life is a covenant. That's deeper than a contract. I used to do this premarital counseling uh, curriculum that perhaps some of you can remember in the old days. And the first chapter asked a question, is marriage a contract? And the answer was always no. It's a covenant. It's something deeper than a contract. I used to do something with a straight face that scared a lot of grooms, prospective grooms. I used to say, listen, it's a covenant between you and God and this lady, but it's going to be a contract with me. I'm going to make you sign a contract. Before I marry you, you've got to sign a contract with me. And if you get divorced, don't worry about who gets the car or the house. I'm going to get it because I'm going to sue you. And I've watched grooms' eyes get really big, you know, before they realized I was kidding. It is a covenant. It is a deep thing. When, when a bride stands here before her groom and the pastor and God and all that are gathered, the groom stands before his bride, they vow, they make a covenant. Listen, having a child is a covenant that you enter into. I don't know what's wrong with our culture today, but it just seems like we live in a time where commitment is a temporary thing. We're, we're, we're committed until it's not working well. <laughs> We're committed until we're having bad days. There's a, there's a book. I haven't even read the book, but it's just such a, there's a great, uh, it's called The Power of Promise. There's just a great little paragraph in here, and if you'll give me a moment, I'd like to read it to you. Uh, the writer says, yes, some, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promise once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. 
They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship you will not desert, if you have people you will not forsake, if you have causes you will not abandon, then you are behaving like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into, the, into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. When a person makes a promise, she stakes a claim on her personal freedom and power. When you make a promise, you take a hand and creating your own future. That's from Lewis Smeets and the Power of Promises. Isn't that good? I, I don't know who I'm talking to today. I mean, a big service like this, one we had in the early service, and those of you watching by television and, and then downloading the sermon, I, I don't know what your life story is. But I'd be willing to wager that there's somebody listening to me right now who has given up. And you say, Mark, it's not working for me. I, I know I shouldn't break my vows. I know I shouldn't break my promises. But I've just decided I want out. I don't like the bum I'm married to. He just makes me miserable all the time. I don't like him. I don't, he, just, he just annoys me. I don't want him to touch me. I, I just want out. Or maybe I'm talking to a, a guy here and he said, I don't... It's not the woman I married. And she, she doesn't look like she used to look, and she doesn't, you know, we had kids, and now she, all the time she's with the kids and doesn't pay attention to me, and, and there's this woman down at the office, and she understands me. I just bet I'm talking to somebody like that. Could I leave you something that's meant a lot to me through the years? Thankfully, I've never been in that kind of situation with my marriage. But as a leader, in many other situations, I've been in a place where everything within me cried out to run away. Everything within me said, let go of it. You don't have to take this. There's something better out there. Do you know what, what has been such a help to me at those critical times? I remember that someday I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to tell it to my kids and my grandkids. And one day I'm going to say, you know, Grandpa, <laughs> Grandpa had a tough day. And everything within him cried out to let go. But I held on. Do I, do I want to tell my kids, you know, it was tough and I just didn't think I could handle it, so I just checked out. I just thought I was married to the wrong person. I was unhappy with my decision. I thought, you know, somebody's better out there. Is that what you want to tell your grandchildren? Or do you want to tell them that when things got tough, you hung tough? I'm not trying to be judgmental today. If you feel that, you felt the wrong thing. Because I don't even really know what's going on in your life. All I'm saying is someday you're going to tell your story. How do you? I just want to challenge you to live out your story the way you want to tell it someday. The bus called irresponsible. 
My time is all gone, and I've got to talk about the most important bus of all. I wish I had another hour to talk to you about this one. Because to be honest with you, the first three buses probably have not affected me very much, but boy, this bus. This bus has taken a lot of things away from me. It's the bus called Aimless. By that I mean, I think there are a lot of people who get married and have kids and they don't really have a plan at home. They have all kinds of thorough plans at work. They have five-year plans. I mean, boy, they carry around day runners and day timers and they've got it planned on their computer. And Boy, they could talk to you. They, could, they can tell you their business plan. They can tell you their business paradigm, the structure of their company. They've got it all planned out. But when they got married, they just said, let it happen. Mary Alice and I were talking about this, and you've got to be kind of old to understand what, what we were talking about. We said, you know, I told Mary Alice how I imagined the yesterday bus, you know, all beat up and up on concrete blocks. And we started thinking about this aimless bus, and all we could think of was the hippie vans of the 60s. You remember all the psychedelic paint, you know? This is the let it happen bus. Yo, yeah, oh man, we're married, we got kids, just let it unfold, let it happen. And I don't think we intend to do this. It's just that we get so busy planning other things that we forget to plan at home. There are many of us who have purpose statements while we work, but we've never developed a purpose statement for our families. Do we wonder why God put our family here in the first place? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? What is it that our marriage is about? What is it that our kids' relationships with us are about? What is it that we want to accomplish? What are our goals? When I study the Bible, one of the things that really amazes me is that some of the greatest leaders in the Bible had huge issues in their families. In fact, it is amazing how many great people in the Bible had disasters at home. One of those guys was a guy named Jacob. You find him in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. He's He's one of the forefathers of the faith. He's one of the heroes of the Bible. When Jacob was a young man and he was single, he had to leave home because of a bad thing that happened with his brother, and he had to run for his life, basically. And while he was running for his life and didn't know where he was going in a strange place, he lay down to sleep on the ground one night, and he had this great dream. And he saw God in his dream, and he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God, because God was there. It was a defining moment in Jacob's life. It's when he got vision and understanding for what his life was all about. But when you read the next chapters of the book of Genesis, you'll discover that Jacob got married. And I mean, he was driving the hippie bus, man. It was let it happen. He didn't have any plan for his family. He didn't have any plan for his marriage. He didn't have any plan with his kids. And by the time you get to chapter 35, things have gone way out of control. And his kids have done all kinds of crazy stuff. You read about his daughter, Diana, who was out with the wrong crowd. And she was a victim of a date rape. And then her brothers went crazy and they did some things. They went over the edge trying to settle it. And, and it's just a mess. And here was this great man, Jacob, who woke up one day and realized he didn't have any plan. He had the aimless bus between him and his plan. Now, I know you don't have time to turn here, but this will be up on the screen. I want to read Genesis 35, chapter 35, verse 2. So Jacob told everyone in his household, Destroy your idols. Wash yourselves and put on clean clothing. We're now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He stayed with me wherever I've gone. So they gave Jacob all their idols and their earrings, and he buried them beneath the tree near Shechem. Isn't that a neat story? 
Jacob said to his kids, you know, we've all picked up a lot of stuff that isn't good. We've allowed stuff in this let it happen, aimless, driftless family situation. We've really allowed some bad stuff to come into our house. And what I love about this dad, and dad's heads up, or mom's if you head up a single family, what I love about this is Jacob now says to his kids, I want you to go back with me to the place where I was when I knew God and I knew what life was about. Folks, I've got three sons, and I've not been a perfect dad, but I've learned some things from raising my kids. I've learned that kids can always deal with honesty. More than anybody else, kids know who you are. No sense in fooling them. No sense in trying to fool them. And I think when you look at Genesis 35, you have a dad who's just kind of let things go, and he hasn't been as focused as he needed to be. And he said, kids, I'm going back to the place when I knew God, and I felt God, and I understood what God wanted from me. And kids, I want you to come back with me, and I want you to experience what I experienced and get to know the God that I know. And there... Diana and her brothers who had gotten their lives all messed up, they dug a big hole and they buried all the stuff they had let in and they went back to the place where God was. Can I challenge you to do that today? Don't let the years get away from you. Don't let it happen. Don't let it unfold. You need a plan. Some of you may want to go home and write a purpose statement for your family. What is it that you're about? What is it that you want to accomplish? Because I guarantee you, if you will let God, He wants to build you a new home. He wants to build a new relationship for you and your wife. He wants to build a new relationship for you and your kids. It's just time for us to say, move that bus, that bus that's in the way. I want to see what God wants to do.